real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romus with you again. We are coming up to Remembrance Day and I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are going to talk about their experiences in training and deployments, uh, the memories, the people and impacts of service. To help me, I've brought along co-host, retired Sergeant Ben Click. Ben spent over 20 years in the Canadian Army. Now he teaches mental management and marksmanship for military and law enforcement and civilians. He is the owner of Sierra 6-4 Riflecraft, and he had two previous appearances on this podcast, episode 16 from season one, and he was the one of the Remembrance Day episodes from 2022. And our guest today is Jake Flanders. Jake joined the Canadian Forces in 1988 with the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. It's always a mouthful to say. <laughs> In 89, he was posted to the Canadian Airborne Regiment. He served over six years in two commando reconnaissance, as well as direct fire support, support platoon, and completed a tour as a detachment commander to Somalia. In 97 and 98, he also served as a section commander in the former Yugoslavia. Later in 98, Jake remustered to the Intelligence Corps and was commissioned into a signals officer. This was one month before he graduated, the War on Terror started. Jake specialized in signals intelligence and deployed to several countries, including the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Bagram, uh, and Afghanistan. He commanded troops and took positions in several other capacities, which we'll get into, but I'm sure people are sick of hearing from me. So Jake has been retired since 2014. So welcome, Ben and Jake. Hey, thank you. Hey, good to be back. I hope I hit all those points correctly. I got the years and everything lined up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> You've done a ton of stuff in your career. So um, I can't do it justice in just a bio, but we'll get into a, a whole bunch of this. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you for being here. And yeah, I'm always excited to talk to the veterans. So, uh, one thing I'd like to start with, uh, if we can, is uh, just kind of get to know you. So tell us about where you're from, uh, growing up, and and what kind of kid you were. Um, yeah, my uh, my dad was a, a trucker, and so I I was born in Moncton, New Brunswick, but I lived all over the country. Uh, but I consider Edmonton my home because that's where I went to junior high and high school, and kind of laid laid my roots. And uh, yeah, so I consider Edmonton home. Okay. Um, what kind of kid I was? Well, um, I. I didn't grow up in a poor family, but we didn't ever own our own home. Uh, we always lived in apartment buildings or townhouses, rentals. Um, but I think I lived a very, a very good childhood. Yeah, you said your dad was a trucker. Uh, and anybody in the family in the military? Any service? Uh, yeah, my my uh, my younger brother uh, went into trucking for a while. Now now he works for uh, uh, Canadian National Railway. But uh, yeah, okay. But anybody in the military side of things that. Uh... Oh, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, the only other person, there are two people 
one was in the military and that was uh my great grandfather on my father's side mm. he was he made it to sergeant in a machine gun battery in the first world war and he was the commanding officer of the princess of wales own regiment in the second world war so he he got his fill yeah. and the only other person in the military is my cousin sam who's in the naval reserve in uh, in halifax right now. okay all right interesting so um when we're talking about you and like where you grew up um can you tell us like about yourself and just maybe whether you're you know team sports guy are you you know uh out in the bush and running around shooting things like what were you doing well like i said edmonton is where i grew up so it's pretty much cold there most of the year uh i'm not a uh, i'm not a team sports guy i played hockey in grade three grade four and uh, back then um there was no there was no divisions it was everybody was lumped into the same team and so i was a mediocre kid so i didn't get much ice time and so i just grew tired of playing hockey so i got into uh biathlon actually oh wow um and and that was an individual sport but that's what i did as a teenager okay biathlon i've never talked to anyone who's done this before so how do you get involved in that uh well i i used to be in the in the army cadets back in the day and um, there was an opportunity to try out for for a uh, for the for an ed- a team in Edmonton, and then from there they combined or competed, and um, and there were provincial tryouts. And so I was a junior uh, by athlete both years, meaning um, I didn't carry my own rifle. I just skied, and then when I got to the range, somebody handed me the rifle, and mm-hmm. and I shot. But I actually made uh, I made the junior team Alberta. Oh wow! What year was that, Jake? You remember? Oh, that would have been 1985, 1986. Okay. Oh, wow, man. We missed by a year because I was doing uh, Alberta Biathlon for UCLI. And... Well, I know, I, I know, uh, you know, Perry Beckwith, correct? Very well. Yeah. 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 He was one of my coaches. One of your coaches. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Perry was the lead, lead uh, coach on our team as well. Yeah. One, one thing, one thing that was funny, Nathan, was I thought, I, you know, you're young, you're a teenager. You're like, well, this is great. I'm on Team Alberta. We went to Quebec for a competition, and I learned quickly learned just how many more um, better qualified people there were in Ontario and Quebec. As I finished way down here at the bottom, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, same, same. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some value to a sport where, like, when you cross the finish line, ninety percent of your your athletes throw up. Like, <laughs> yes. like, you know, that's a reality of biathlon, man. Like, it's is you just going flat out for as long and as fast as you can. Well, the the uh, the advantage to being in a, a biathlete in Alberta is is the cold temperature because when you're in Quebec, everybody else is cold, but you think it's beautiful, and so that that just that little bit of extra help that you get is good. Absolutely, yeah. And training in Canmore altitude, right? Yes, yes. So, well, when you were training and and doing all those things, like, do you find um, any of that the the skills or character uh, type building? Um, uh, pieces like do they translate very well into the military is that like a big thing that helped you get in i don't know that they helped me get in but what they did was i i joined the military one month after i turned 18 and there are all these tough physical things that you do in training well the one thing biathlon did was it made me realize hey you can do this because you've done something like this before okay if that makes any sense something very physically difficult you've done something like this before yeah yeah I mean, Perry, Perry talked about the 40% rule long before it was called the 40% rule. And when you, when you think you're physically and mentally done, like you're, you're, you're gassed, you're completely exhausted. The reality is you've expended about 40% of your capacity. 
and you've still got about 60% left in the tank. Um, and that's that, like I say, that's, that's the value of a sport that makes you throw up every time you do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, as you're coming up, you said you, you turn 18 one month after is when you join the military. Yes. What leading up to that though, what made you want to take that career path? Well, I, I, Nathan, as a boy, like being six, seven, eight, nine years old, I played soldier all the time, <laughs> yeah. cowboys and Indians all the time. And, you know, I would have, I, I just wanted to join the military and I would have joined if I didn't get paid, except if they, if they paid my rent and my rations, yeah. I would be in like, <laughs> yep. Well, and, yeah. and, and to be fair, I joined just after Ben did in 1988 and I made 800 and Forty dollars a month. So after the rations and quarters came off, that wasn't a lot of money left over. But I loved every second of it. Awesome. Yeah, you you couldn't have paid us enough for what we do, um, which is a good thing because they weren't trying to pay us enough <laughs> for what we did. But uh, no, we certainly weren't there for the money. So yeah, well, you're going in, and usually um, some of the people we talk to on here, like they'll have you know family members that are in the military, and they kind of draw off of that. Or they say like um you know I watched I just watched too many movies and thought that's the cool thing I should have went to so I like getting kind of that perspective of why somebody actually went in so it was kind of a draw for you I, I can I can think of two times in particular one was when I was 13 years old my father who was uh, he's passed away now but um, he was very very much anti-war and he says Jake he sat me down in front of the VCR it was a Betamax actually like we're going way back and he says I want you to watch this movie because this is what war is really like. It was the first time I ever watched Apocalypse Now. I was 13 mm -hmm. years old and I thought, oh man, I, want, I so want to do stuff like that. <laughs> and the second, thing, uh, the second thing was when I was in the Army cadets, I did the uh, Jump Force in 1987, the year before I joined the Army. And that solidified it. That was like, I love this stuff. I really want to do this for, for a career. At least, at least at that age, that's what I thought. But when your dad, so your dad was trying to get you to not go in and it totally right, backfired. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, um, so when you're, yeah, you're going that path and then you say, okay, I'm going to join, you know, when you break the news to the parents, uh, what are they, what are they saying? What are they like? Well, my, my dad was quasi supportive. Like he wasn't negative. My mom was like, oh my God, my baby wants to join the army. Oh no, yeah. oh, no. And at the time, I was only 17 and you had to have your parents' signature to join the army. And she would, she wouldn't, she wouldn't sign. Uh, and, and looking back on that at my age now, I'm like, of course I wouldn't let my 17 year old son join either. But the, the month, it, it was not even one month after I turned 18, the recruiting center called and it was, everything fell into place. And, uh, yeah, I was in the army. Awesome. Maybe run us a bit through, uh, what the application process looks like for you. So when you're applying, uh, What's it like in 88? Well, um, yeah, I, I initially applied in 1987. And um, so the recruiting office is probably like like you're familiar with in, in the police forces that you've been involved with. Um, so the recruiting center doesn't really give a care about what you're interested in. They're trying to fill holes, fill gaps. Yeah. And so I was supposed to be uh, some kind of naval trade, uh, an MSC, a uh, mobile support equipment operator. But I wanted to join the infantry. Specifically, I wanted to join the Princess Portia. And so that's why it took a while when I, in 1987 to, to finally come up with, with, um, with, with a, a hole that needed to be filled by the PPCLI. However, 
I was in, I lived in Edmonton, and at the time, Edmonton didn't have an army base; it had an air force base. The mm. army base with the first battalion, Patricia's, was in Calgary. So this this uh, recruiting corporal flippantly said, "Well, you know, if you were in Calgary, you'd you'd fare you'd fare much better." Well, guess what? I was seventeen, picked up, moved to Calgary. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You called his bluff on it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get like a when you go in? It's, I imagine it's not like the U.S. where you know you're like you're either going to the Marines recruiting or the Army recruiting. Here you just go in and it's whatever. Right. Yeah. It's it's, it's all tri service, um, and you you could be recruited by a uh, a corporal female supply tech for the for the infantry or whatever. And even when you when you go to basic training, it's in Saint Jean, Quebec now, but it used to be in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia. Once again, it's all. Uh, Air Force, Navy, Army put together, and it's just the basic. Uh, and it was ten weeks, right, at Cornwallis back twelve, twelve, twelve. Okay, yeah. so and and it's just the basics of how to march, how to salute, what the rank systems are. You get all your your inoculations, and you know it's very basic. But then when you go to the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Battle School in Wainwright, that's when it you get the wake up call, and that's when the training really starts. And that's uh, Battle School sixteen weeks back then, Ben. Yeah, a little. Yeah, around there, a little longer yeah. maybe, but it just felt like forever. All, all I know is I started, I started in the summer, and it the uh, the old Quonset huts that we used to be in, they flooded uh, three times. We lost multiple floor tiles. Had to had to polish the empty floor tile space with the uh, boot polish until it had a glass shine. And uh, by the time I left, it was November and freezing cold. <laughs> And I think that was, um, and for Ben there, I think that's a, about the same sentiment that uh, Nick was saying on our previous recording where, you know, it, the basic training, not so bad, but it's once you get to those further steps, that's where the, it gets a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's why I asked Nick, and I'll ask you the same question. Now, do you remember, uh, Jake, what the attrition rate was? Like, for example, we started with 40, ended with 19. So this is, uh, I kid you not, we started with 38. 11 people graduated, seven of us were originals. I, I went through battle school and Mike Rude was recoursed into my platoon. So just to put this into perspective, Nathan, this was back in the day when Canada, the Canadian army was supposed to be the backup to the reserves or the backup to the reserves to the soldiers in Norway or the soldiers in West Germany. You know, it was, we, we, we weren't as, we weren't in combat as often as we were in the recent past, but we were, Far more fit soldiers, I would I would argue, better trained and fit than the Europeans. Yes, no, no, no. Than than sorry, than modern day Canadian soldiers. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, that's. I think yours was a little higher attrition rate uh, than probably expected, and I'm sure there were some some people panicking when they dropped below, dropped into the single digits. Yeah. And Jake mentioned recourse. That means that uh, soldiers that for one reason or another usually they're injured or uh, they they haven't met a training objective. Uh, they're given a second chance rather than just thrown out of the army. Mm -hmm. So they may heal up or or take some time and then be uh, be put back onto a course midway through the course. So it's not unusual. Like I said, we graduated 19 of the originals, but I think we had three or four people who joined our course from previous courses. So that's that's what a recourse is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a fairly high attrition rate, unusually high attrition rate for Jake's course. Um, um, and and just, just to make this point, Nathan, um, the, the PPCLI has three infantry battalions, and it, it, it's a large group of people, like, uh, what, 2,450, Ben, something? On paper. On, on yeah. paper. But but yeah. so 
there, there, there are certainly many Patricias that I haven't met. However, Mike Rude was this gentleman who's recoursed into my platoon. Well, Mike Rude went to the Airborne with me the same year. And then Mike Rude also went to Somalia with me. Mike Rude, and, and I'll get into this later, he, he, he was under fire with me. And then Mike Rude went to Yugoslavia with me. And then Mike Rude, you know, so <laughs> here's a guy as a civilian, we didn't have very much in common. I would have never been friends with him. But now we're almost best friends. And, yeah. and that's because of military service and sharing experiences yeah. and being scared together and being operational together. And yeah. Yeah. You have a ton to relate to, right? And it's nobody else to share that experience with necessarily. So yeah, I mean, you build those friendships and the camaraderie as you're going through all this stuff. So yeah, I think, and that's something we've been in uh, having these conversations and we get more into is talking about just the the benefit of that. That's why I asked earlier, like, you know, we're a big team sports guy because we find a lot of the people we talk to, they'll bring that team aspect into, like, they're looking for that. Where do I find that now that I'm, you know, leaving school? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to post-secondary. Yeah. You know, the best place you're going to find that is likely military, unless you're playing sports high level. Yeah. Um, well, sports, sports is obviously a big uh, focus for the military because it, it builds a spree de corps. But I, I don't know if you've, you've talked about this with Ben prior to, to this episode, but um, fire team partners are everything in the military. And um, it's, it's, um, it's hard to explain, but if you imagine an eight-person section advancing to contact on the enemy, you are attacking the enemy. You're divided into pairs. And the pair that you're in, that's with your fire team partner. And he has to get up and run three steps while under fire while you're covering him and vice versa. Mm. And so that's just the basics, but that is the, the, the trust that you build with that fire team partner. And that fire team partner is the same guy for probably a year straight. It, it's a lot like having a, a partner on the police force. Yeah. If, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, what happens if you don't like your fire team partner? Tough luck. <laughs> I was going to say you <laughs> learn to like each other. Yeah. You don't have to like them. You just have to love them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, like like that's one skill is is you do learn to work very very closely intimately with um, like literally cuddled up and spooning in the free in the freezing weather with a person that like Jake said you might not otherwise even make eye contact with in civilian life uh, had you not served together. Wow. Um, Jake will tell a, tell an incident later probably where a, a group of desperate soldiers were overseas and something happened. Uh, we weren't part of the same subunit at all. Yet we organized ourselves and formed in a team, picked Jake as the leader in about three seconds. Yeah. And I picked I picked uh, Mike Root as second in command. As your two IC. In another yeah. three seconds. And there were many yeah. people senior to him and they all nodded agreement. Yep, sounds good, sounds yep, good, cool. sounds good. Mm. Because we're under fire. You know, it was yep. that's that's something that uh, I find fascinating and I feel like you would be hard pressed to find that today in a lot of respects. There's very little of that that exists anymore. So um, not to go off on a tangent, but yeah, I, that's, that's something that um, I would say is very hard to find nowadays. Well, may maybe in, in the general public, but I, I, I would hope that now that Ben and I are a little older and we depend on the Canadian Army or the Canadian Armed Forces to defend us, yeah. I would hope that that esprit de corps and that, uh, that fire team partner mentality 
still exists. And and I believe, I truly believe it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was just in a civilian competition last week, and there were two of the snipers who came out to shoot. And there were dudes that I saw in the basic course last year. Uh, I got to spend some time there. And I know it's a fairly select group, but man, there's some studs. Yeah. Like there's yeah. some good people who are at least as good as we ever were. And yeah. these these guys were in good hands, man. There aren't a lot of people in the military, but the ones that are there that I've seen are just just as good as we ever were. That's good to hear. That's encouraging. So, yeah, it is. It is. Um, so yeah, Jake, you you talking about uh, going through the application process, and can you walk us through just kind of like the start of you know you get through applying, and they come and say, "Hey, we want you." Um, what was that conversation like, and and then where does that take you off to? Honestly, uh, Nathan, uh, the time that I, that I was approached by the recruiting office and then sent off to Cornwallis. All I remember about Cornwallis is the saluting test and vaccinations. That's it. Because <laughs> yeah. all the rest is a blur because Wainwright was definitely a, a hard, hard a training session. Uh, and then from, from battle school, I, uh, well, actually, um, my platoon commander in, uh, so there's, there's non-commissioned officers and then there's commissioned officers. Well, there's a commission officer in charge of the battle school course. So you you are essentially a platoon. You're not 33 men, but you're somewhere in, in there. Okay. Well, my platoon commander was a young lieutenant by the name of Richard Hewson. Hmm. And Richard Hewson um, got posted back to the 3rd Battalion, where I was posted to in Victoria at the time. Hmm. And so not only was... Richard posted back to the third battalion, but he was posted as the platoon commander of the very platoon that I was going in. And, and there are 12 platoons. So that's that's a bit of a fluke upon a fluke that my platoon commander was posted to the same platoon that I was a member of. And he was a very, very smart individual. And I learned a ton. And I was um, I went to a rendezvous. Uh, my first big exercise was rendezvous 1989 in, in the summer in Wainwright. And um, I learned a ton because I was the platoon machine gunner in a turret gunner in, in the armored vehicle general purpose that he was the platoon commander in. So over the intercom system and radio, I could hear all the orders that he was receiving from the company commander, the orders that he was giving to the section commanders. And I was learning a lot more than I, than I probably should have, Mm. but I was retaining it all. And not to mention that he, he was a very good, he is a very, very good person. Okay. Now, um, later on, a year after I get posted to the Airborne Regiment, well, Captain Houston, he's promoted captain, he gets posted in there. And and we, you know, I, I wasn't in his platoon, but on one exercise in Wainwright, Alberta, again, uh, I had to, myself and this other guy, Teddy Smith, had, were uh, doing the reconnaissance job, and we had to lead uh, Richard's platoon to the objective, to the ambush. And um, after the ambush was done, uh, there was a certain sergeant, he was, shall remain nameless, um, who, who wanted Teddy Smith to get in the traces to pull the toboggan, which is a hard job. And Smith is like, I'm not part of your platoon. I'm not doing... So we get in this argument. We're supposed to be tactical, right? So these guys are in an argument. And uh, and um, uh, the platoon warrant, who at the time was Rui Amaral, comes over and says, Sergeant Blank, what's going on here? Wow, we're a man short. So I told uh, Smith to get in the traces. He goes, Smith is a, is a recce guy. You get in the traces if you're a man short. And you know what? And and Rich Houston was there with his hands on his hips saying, yep, absolutely. And so later on, um, uh, 
we can get into this later, but uh, I testified at the Somali inquiry and I needed a lawyer. Well, it just so happened that Rich Hewson um, got out of the army and became a lawyer. Oh, really? Well, I knew him a little better because his wife's a teacher. My ex-wife's a school teacher. They hung out in Petawawa. So we hung. It's not normal for NCOs and officers to hang out, but we're at the same parties. So away we go. So I get Richard to uh, to be my lawyer. Uh, he came from BC and uh, he, he came to Ottawa to, to, to uh, uh, defend me. And then I, I hadn't seen him in, oh, geez, probably 20 years. And then um, eight years ago, I was dating a girl in Vernon here. And um, she she didn't have Facebook and I did. And she goes, what's Facebook for? And I survived. It's, diff it's something different for everybody. But for me, it's just to stay in touch with old army buddies. And uh, she goes, what do you mean? So I showed her a picture from 1989, Fort Ord, California, and it's the platoon. And everybody I know, their names are highlighted in blue. Everybody I don't know is UNK, UNK. But everybody I do know, if they know who they are, they populate. So I explained this whole situation. And she goes, who's that? I said, oh, that's my old buddy, Rich Houston. He's a great guy, blah, blah, blah. She goes, oh, okay. I just started dating her. And uh, she used to work for Rich Houston. She's, she was a secretary in a law office. Wow. So she phones his wife. She phones his wife, who was the school teacher of both her children, and she's and and she wants to find out who this Jake guy is if he if he's if he's good to go or if he's yeah. a psycho. Anyways, <laughs> so I get a phone call. I get a phone call at uh, I used to work at the Kelowna Airport. I get a phone call in the morning and saying, "Is this Jake Flanders?" Yeah, who's this? It's Richard Houston. I said, "Rich, how you doing, buddy?" Blah blah blah. We talked for five. 10 minutes before I found out he was a judge. Oh, wow. Oh, I said, oh, excuse me, your honor. Yeah, yeah. But so once again, um, he probably wouldn't have given me the time of day, much the same way I wouldn't have given Mike Rude the time of the day. But because we served together and because we served under some pretty tough circumstances, we're yeah. friends for life. Well, it just shows how small of a world this is. That's pretty crazy that all those things, just the how they all connect. Yeah. It is. It's a. It's it's a very small. Uh, it's a very small family business. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. If I can expand on that, Ben, it's a very small family, but the good people are even smaller, and and that's that's who we tend to to congregate with. Yeah. Yeah. That that is very true. And it. it um, I was thinking earlier while you were talking about the connection is, um, the connections are so tight that uh, afterwards it can be difficult to have healthy functional relationships with peers because your expectation or I should say my expectation of their level of commitment mm -hmm. is so much higher like uh, a mutual friend of ours had a, a life-threatening crisis a lot two years ago and he lives an hour and a quarter away and i was on the road within about 20 minutes to go up and be there and we wouldn't even question that you know that's that's normal so when somebody else, you know, I make a, a friend with a coworker, I got into healthcare after, you know, and I'm, I'm expecting them to have the same level of commitment to a relationship that like Jake and I would. And it's just like, they're so disappointing. And as a result, we end up pretty much hanging out with the same type of people, Yeah, uh, you know, with, with each other. I'll, I'll back up uh, Ben's statement by saying that I only have uh, one friend who was never in the military, one good, good best friend. That's it. Um, other than that, um, uh, Ben's wife, because she's a good person, but she's also married to Ben. And, and so, you know, it just, it's a very, very, very limited number of non-military friends. Yeah. You see that in policing too? Yeah, I, I imagine. Well, yeah, it's exactly the same. 
um, I've had to learn that there's, you know, there's levels of friendship. Not everybody's going to bleed for me. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a different deal. And, and one of my best friends here, uh, with, uh, I'm on the Vernon search and rescue team. He's a retired Edmonton police services officer who is also in the loyal Edmonton regiment reserves. And he says, when you're talking to civilians, you can't go to that police level of sarcasm and you certainly <laughs> can't go to the military level of sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dark humor is an art form, but it's not, it's not for, not for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So well, we'll keep moving along here. The, you, so you're in battle school. Um, what happens from there? Like, what uh, you know? Do you go? Oh, so I, I went. I went to the third battalion in in Victoria, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't even spend a year there. Um, so Victoria is a very uh, there's there's no training area. So I went on an exercise a grand total of three times. Uh, once north to Nanaimo to a tri- tiny tiny little training area. Uh, once to Fort Lewis, Washington, and once to Wainwright, Alberta. So that kind of explains it for you. Like we always had to leave. We had to o- always had to take yeah. airplanes to go places. And I was young. I was I was full of piss and vinegar. And I was like, no, no, I want to I want a soldier. So at the time, uh, they were asking for volunteers to. We had a we had a program where we didn't have enough junior leaders. We didn't have a le- enough master corporal. So they had this. Uh, direct accelerated promotion program where you could be a, a private soldier, skip corporal, and go right to mass corporal. So there was that option. Mm. The second option was at the time um, we we had a battalion of infantry, either from the Patricias, the Royal Canadian Regiment, or the Royal Van Deuxième Regiment of Canada would would send a battalion over to Europe to West Germany. So that was the second option was to try out to see if you could get a position with um, the second battalion. Uh, Patricia's going to Germany, West Germany. And the third option was to go to the Airborne Regiment. And there were only a grand total out of 801 men. There were only three of us that applied to go to the Airborne Regiment. And luckily, I, I was accepted. So I, I didn't need do. I didn't even do a year in battalion. I was gone to the Airborne. Really? Why is it only three of you put in for that? Uh, well, um, Germany. Uh, Germany. Is, <laughs> yeah, Germany yeah. Uh, is a chance. When the Canadian dollar was two and a half marks to the, like you were, you live like a king over there. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and back, to, I'll remind you how much, how much, uh, how little money we made as, as private, no hook privates back then. Um, that was the money, the travel experience, because you could travel all of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to train hard. I wanted to, I wanted to do as close to a real mission as I could do. So I, I asked to go to the airborne and, and I was accepted, but, but I think that's just the world according to myself. And I think Ben agrees with me, but it's just the travel opportunity to West Germany was so great, yeah. but I, yeah. I, I wanted to do something slightly different. Jay, Jay kind of alluded to that. There's, you know, we hang out with certain types of people. Um, the airborne regiment tended to attract the people who wanted to do the, the hard soldiering. Mm-hmm physically and mentally difficult and you get paid you get a you get a minimal amount more which i figured out worked out to exactly the additional provincial sales tax on my disposable income so you're not making any more money in the airborne uh you're certainly working harder for it but you knew you'd be doing it alongside uh exceptional people generally and and and, and to back up or to further explain ben's point um so in the regular infantry, so there are three battalions of 801 men in the Patricias, in the Royal Vendusia Regiment, and in the Royal Canadian Regiment, right? So you have nine battalions of infantry. Well, one of those battalions will do uh, relaxation for a year, like go on leave and 
all this. Then they will do a year of preparation and then they are on deployment for six months mm-hmm. or, or pre-deployment and then deployment for six months. So that's three years for battalion. In the Airborne Regiment, it was annual. You did all the training annually. The cycle. And yep. so what that meant was not only did you have to, like all the physical uh, fitness standards were always higher, but you got way, way more bombs and bullets than you did as a regular infantry. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The training was, I mean, I think, uh, I think within my first year there, uh, we went to a, a training cycle that was like 11 days of like Boy Scout camp on crack. Like you were in the morning, you were tank hunting in the afternoon, you were setting primary explosives in the evening, you were doing a night range. And that would be like a whole year's training worth in a regular battalion. So I kid you not, Nathan. um, So when I was in direct fire support platoon, after a couple of years in the airborne regiment, I was a master corporal. So I was a detachment commander. So that's three guys. And one guy is the machine gunner with a 7.62 millimeter C6 general purpose machine gun. Hmm. And so that has that has a 220 round belt right and three barrels that can that can exchange when we were getting ready to go to somalia there were eight detachments so eight c6 machine guns and two 16 ton trucks loaded with ammunition and we shot all afternoon all evening and all night and just changed barrels change yeah, barrels barrel. until we were until we were yeah. bang on accurate wow so it's 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 like if the army made a beer commercial that would be the airborne <laughs> Like you got to do all the cool stuff, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's where we went to soldiers. So it attracted that critical mass of people and they were good and bad, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it had the reputation and therefore it attracted a critical mass of people who wanted to do the, uh, the soldiering. Most people only went there. Most guys only went there for three years. Jake and I were able to eke out a lot more years than that. But, uh, generally it was a three year posting where you went away and you really perfected your junior leadership skills, even if you weren't trained because nature parachute operations you can lose the leader mm-hmm. uh the first jump that the one can parrot in world war ii they lost the colonel on the jump and the second command took over the commanding officer the whole unit yep yeah yep. uh, so as a as a bone stock trooper you would be briefed and expected that if you were carrying the radio for the platoon commander or if you stumbled across the dead platoon commander well guess what you're the platoon commander doesn't matter what rank you and are. that was the nature yep that was the training and that that's that's what we went there to do yeah, we, we had, the, so so the subunit, 120 guys, is a commando. So before an operation, the commanding officer of the commando would brief everybody mm. on the entire mission. For like eight hours. And that was yeah. exactly as Ben said, if the platoon commander goes down or the sergeant goes down, you take over. doesn't matter whether you're qualified or not. You know the plan. Away you go. Wow. And that's a level of trust that doesn't exist elsewhere. When I talked to uh, Ben before... He was saying, because uh, he joined in the 80s, and he's thinking, uh, I'm going out to kill commies, and this is kind of the, the times. So are you coming in with kind of the same mentality? Are you thinking you're going to fight Russia? You you might be going to Germany and, and kind of taking this on? Or? No, it, it was Soviet Union. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, one thing I alluded to um, earlier when I was talking with Ben was just about, I had the same mentality, and my first deployment, actually both our, our first deployment overseas yep. to a combat zone was Somalia. And I was all like, this is going to be great. Oh, yes. And because I'd never experienced any of that before. And my eyes were open quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, uh, As Ben mentioned, uh, there was one time we were together when we were under fire. And there was a, 
a couple other times when we're not together where we're either shooting or being shot at stuck in a minefield and it and it kind of it's an eye opener and and you're like oh okay and then that that time that ben was talking about was in uh, was in mogadishu actually uh when we came under fire and as as much as what ben said the airborne was a separate cast everybody who was there wanted to be there and they wanted to soldier hard the second that they said jake you'll be in charge i was thinking to myself man i know i'm good but i hope i can handle this i hope i can do this and i hope I, and, and, it, and it all went well but in the back of your mind you meant like jake don't screw this up don't yeah. screw this up don't yeah. yeah you don't want to fail the man beside you right You're, that was your first deployment in somalia so when leading yep. up to that um and as i usually ask the guests like what are you thinking once you kind of get those orders and they say like hey we're going this is the real stuff now. Yeah. So we, so, um, uh, Fraser Eady was the, was the major who took over the first Canadian parachute battalion, um, in the second world war on, on, on D-Day. Um, and, um, so he came to Petawawa to the Christmas dinner in, uh, in 1990, Ben, was it? Or 90, yep. no, 90, 90, 91, 90, 91, 91. Yes. Yeah. Before we went. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we were supposed to go to Western Sahara on the United Nations mission. And we were all pumped. We we're like, okay, yes, we're going. Well. well, we just found out we weren't going. So we were kind of really bummed out. So then when the warning order for Somalia came out, and it was only a it was a short window, everybody had the seed of doubt. Like, oh yeah, sure, we're gonna go to Somalia. Oh yeah, sure. And then next thing you know, boom. I don't know when you deployed, Ben, but I deployed on uh, Boxing Day. I was like, holy crap, this is really happening. Same, same. Yeah. Same aircraft. Okay. Yep. But but you know what's funny, and this is a funny story, and 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 I just thought of this as as you were talking about same aircraft. So imagine back in the day, we used to have seven oh sevens to transport us instead of the Airbus. So imagine, if you will, the Canadian Armed Forces is not necessarily wrapping its mind around combat. They've been in peacekeeping for all these years. I'm not joking when I say all of our web gear and rifles were strapped together at the front of the 707 in a big conglomeration cluster. Yeah. And then as, as we we're getting closer to, I think it was, um, uh, Mombasa. Or, no, 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 uh, uh, no, before it was Crete, Crete. Crete. We yeah, were yeah. going to refuel in Crete. We're so thirsty. So the stewardesses, as they were called back then, flight attendants in their blue skirts and, and, Iron dress uniform, short sleeve shirts, and ribbon bars, and everything brought us junior juice boxes because that's all they could fit. <laughs> and that, that just that's the mentality. Yeah. And and yeah. so then we got to uh, then we we finally got to uh, um, uh, Mogadishu, mm -hmm. and um, two commando had had done a uh, had done an assault with uh, with uh, an, a U.S. unit, and then so uh, combat support which Ben was in reconnaissance platoon. I was in direct fire support platoon. So, so we're in the same unit, subunit. Yeah. Just just very quickly, Jake, I'll just, just yeah. explain. Uh, the Airborne Regiment had three line commandos. They're, they're the actual warfighters. Um, yeah. And then in addition, there's a fourth organization that had specialized troops, whether it was us doing reconnaissance or Jake's platoon, which provided heavy weapons like heavy machine guns and anti-armor weapons, light machine guns, or mini machine guns, pardon me. Um, or the signals unit, or or all these other, but they worked at a level to support the entire regiment. So two commando had gone ahead of us, 
uh, was already in country, and then the combat support people we came in after. So, so we're in we're in uh, Mogadishu at the airfield, and I think we'd only s- slept there one night, and uh, and the next next day we got orders to go relieve two commando in place. However, so the roll on roll off ship set sail way before we went in the aircraft. So they they have most of our ammunition. We we just had the bare bones basics. So they were offloading Sea King helicopters, bringing in sling loads of ammunition. So I went on the assault. I had a grand total of five magazines. <sighs> what? Like I had 13 magazines, but all they had ammunition for was five rifle magazines. But I must have had like six or seven M72 rockets because that's all they have. So that's uh, what was in the sling load. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's what we did our first assault with. So you're like, I guess I'm just shooting rockets. Yeah. Well, Jake, Jake talks about you know getting your eyes open. That that lack of ammunition thing is it was kind of one of my epiphany moments of hmm, maybe our army's not you know that checked out. <laughs> you know the the only sniper ammo I had I had smuggled in my rifle box. Um, they they I didn't get ammunition for my sniper rifle for almost the entire mission. Jeez, uh, the entire six months. Um, but I had smuggled some ashore, you know, in, in my gear. So, you know that I'm like ooh. Oh, I'm glad I did this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you you know it's you know like Jake says, there's no bullets, but lots of rockets. You know, it's it's just but, but that's just that's just how the roll on roll off ship had it palletized, and and they were it wasn't the ship's crew's fault. It wasn't the no. the it wasn't the Sea King helicopter pilots or navigators fault. It was just all they had, and it, and it, yeah. and, and we they knew we were leaving in an hour, so they were just bringing as yeah. much ammo whatever they could. They, Whatever they yeah. could, whenever they could. Yeah, it, a good example was our hats. We had uh, because oh. we're going to the desert. Oh, don't bring this up, Ben. They gave us, they gave us Tilly hats. Don't tell the public. Right? Real, <laughs> okay. real, like real Tilly hats, but they're like white, like you know, like oh, you know, snowbird kind of hat, right? You expect to see a dude in like tall socks and short pants wearing these. But the Navy did the best they could. They dyed them on the deck. They dyed them with with green. I think it was food dye. Well, of course, as soon as we got in the heat and the sweat, yeah. the green dye ran out of the hats and down our faces. So I think the smallies thought it was like kiss invading because we all had like Gene <laughs> Simmons mascara. And, you know, and it, again, it wasn't anybody's malice or incompetence. It was just everybody doing the best they, they could with very, very limited stuff. Yeah. So uh, I, I, will, I will just interject on Ben's point, Nathan. And, and I'm going to say this because I don't want to forget it. And, and I'm looking at my watch and I can't believe how, how long we've talked already. Um, so... If if I went from 1993 Somalia and we learned so many lessons and and there were lessons that we learned that that we just it had been so long since we'd been in combat in Korea and and uh, well there was the first Gulf War but we weren't we weren't in, in, in combat, in combat. Yeah. Um, but we learned so many lessons I I would like to tell you uh, on my fourth tour in Afghanistan um, the Brigadier General was relieved of command. Um, because he was having an affair with one of his clerks. They took the second in command, Lieutenant Colonel, in charge. They put him in charge of the brigade for the remaining five months. That is how the Canadian forces changed. They took the right guy. They didn't care what rank he was. And they said, you're in charge. And that, huh. that so I, I was pleasantly surprised. Very, very, very happy. Yeah. Okay. What I'm wondering too is like, so when you, you, you're saying you land in uh, Mogadishu, and it seems like everything just happens fast. Like you land, all of a sudden you're out the next day and stuff. Did you? At what point do you kind of like get uh, a break to say, "Wow, like I'm here." And like Mogadishu is very different than Canada. So, at what point are you like, 
I can't believe I'm here. And, and, you know, what's that thought process like for you? Um, well, you, you have ups and ups and downs, highs and lows. Um, <laughs> I remember, uh, I remember we're, we're, we went from Mogadishu to Bellatoy in Somalia and we, we were on the airfield. I think you guys were up at the observation post, right? Right. Yep. Or, the yeah. Time, yeah. And, uh, um, and we come under mortar attack. And I remember oh. my my platoon commander Paul Gladstone, who was the only British exchange officer. Uh, yes, he was the only British exchange officer yeah. uh, with the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Anyway, the only British officer to get the Somalia Medal. Anyways, um, uh, anyways, he says, "Get behind cover." Well, you're trying to compute this. There's mortar rounds coming in. What is behind cover? Yeah. And Kevin <laughs> Kevin Little was trying to uh, to roll up his thermarest, but the with so much dust. That the that the uh, valve was plugged, so he started stabbing it with his bayonet. And we'd only been a country like maybe three days or something, and so for the rest of the tour, he's he slept on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, like you're there, and it just seems like such a whirlwind. Um, can you talk a bit about some of the the activity that you were involved in when you were there, and and how long were you there? Uh, well, I was there six months. Ben was there a little longer. Uh, ben was actually one of the last people to leave Somalia. True story. Um, um, and um, so it, it was. It was very different. Um, and 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 our roles changed uh, as as the mission went on. Like um, uh, at the beginning, I was direct fire support, and uh, we had uh, eighty four millimeter uh, anti tank weapons and fifty caliber machine guns. But then, of course, the Somalis turned tail, ran, gave up, and so we became. A de facto second reconnaissance platoon because they they were so short staffed and they had all these tasks to do. We would backfill them um, on yeah. route reconnaissance, on observation post duty, and and stuff like that. Sorry to make a little clearer picture. Both both platoons were essentially doing the same thing. Uh, three guys roaring around the desert in these light armored vehicles, painted bright white, uh, covered in mud. Uh, yeah, which worked out. Which worked out, actually worked out pretty well. But our job was, we were really lucky, both of us, because our jobs were to cover a wide-ranging area where organizations like Two Commando were restricted to simply foot patrols at 35 to 52 degrees in the city. Jeez. You know, they might have that as their sector. So we, we had pretty good jobs. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to put that into perspective, Nathan, um, when, when Ben's talking about going out in, in these armored vehicles, we were doing route reconnaissance. So... These maps that we had of Somalia were old Soviet maps. And the only thing on these maps were the blue grid lines and bodies of water or where water would, that's it. No roads, no hills, no forests, no, no anything. And what you have to understand, so we are going along and stopping every kilometer and a half or so to record GPS coordinates. Well, back then, GPS had just come out and it was it was operated by the U.S. military. Mm. And so Canada was the first country outside the U.S. military to be trusted and trusted with GPS. So um, um, we had, was it the Magellan system or? Yeah. And yeah. so in all honesty, sometimes it would take 20, 25, 35 minutes to get a three satellite fix of your position within 100 meters. And that's when, if you can imagine, do, 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 going down the road, doing a road reconnaissance, marking it on the map for the for the for the other commandos to use on their patrols. That's when you ran into minefields, and you, you'd have to wait, be cleared by the engineers who would come and pull your vehicle out and 
away you'd go again. Yeah, that would be insane. I thought you were going to say like, yeah, you got to stop and wherever you're stopped, that's where you start taking fire. You're like, every time we stop seems to be the time and the place where somebody else is set up. No, but, but uh, I'll tell you, you do get good at recognizing the road goes, 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 goes. And then all of a sudden there's this track that all the donkeys and farmers take. You probably should take that track <laughs> yeah. and not go down the road. So um, in Somalia, like, are you stuck? You, I'm guessing you had a, an experience or two of being stuck in a minefield? Uh, yeah, w- once I was stuck in a minefield. And it was funny. It was, um, we had a, an Italian uh, uh, company commander and sergeant major coming with our section just, just for the sake of, hey, we're going to go with the Canadians today. Hey, <laughs> we got stuck in the minefield with them. And the sergeant major was so mellow. And I, I just to explain, a sergeant major is the senior non-commissioned officer of the company. He is there to make sure that the junior officers are trained properly and that all the all the uh, warrants and sergeants are are acting properly. Like okay. like he is he's he's, he's the he's hammer like grandfather, but rules with an iron fist. So this sergeant major gets out on the back of this armored vehicle, starts making a cappuccino. He's like, "Hey, cafe, cafe, anyone cafe?" <laughs> you know, and he, he it was it was really good to have him there because you're in the middle of a of a of a minefield and you're kind of like, "Hey, uh, you know, like." can't even go to the bathroom like off the vehicle but yeah just, just having that guy making cappuccino was like ah, it was awesome <laughs> that's leadership yeah yep. exactly that is leadership yeah well and you know what it just brings the level down right like everyone might be up here and you want to bring them down a little bit so let's have some clear yeah. thinking about what we got to do and how to get out of this um so well you said you were there about six months in somalia yep and yep. Can you kind of walk us through, so you do your deployment, um, and then what happens after Somalia? Do you come back to Canada, or are you off to the next thing? Uh, no, uh, so in the Army, um, um, there's a, when you when you do, a, you do six, up to six months pre-deployment training, then you deploy, and then you have six months where you're, where you're just relaxing. And mm-hmm. so you just do regular routine um, activities. Um, excuse me. Um, but as Ben said, uh, we're, we're very fortunate to to spend. Uh, um, I got six years out of there, and you did seven, right, Ben? Yeah, seven, seven and a half, something like that. Yeah, and uh, and it was I didn't know it at the time, but it was because I started out in two commando, went to reconnaissance platoon, then went to direct fire support, and then back to two commando, and that that kind of that worked out. Um, we hit out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we hit out. So, um, yeah, we uh, I I didn't do any more deployments. Uh, I left. Uh, the airborne it was it was pretty mellow um uh i left the airborne and i was posted to the command and staff college in toronto and i had a permanent military quarters in in oakville that i lived in and drove that long 52 kilometers in and back every day on the 401 and qew uh i did that for a year and then uh, and then i was posted back to the third battalion which had been relocated from victoria to edmonton and uh, yeah, and uh, that's when I saw Ben again, and uh, yeah, it, it was all good. And and I was promoted to sergeant, and uh, that's when uh, I did my my tour in Yugoslavia. It, it was a long tour in Yugoslavia, but um, uh, I was I was from Charlie Company, Third Battalion, Princess Patricia's. But this is during the Jean Chrétien years, and the army was so broken and pay freezes and undermanned that our company. Uh, went, was attached to the Lord Strathcona's force for their tour of Yugoslavia. So, just, just to be clear, Jake, you're, you're now peacekeeping 
I mean, our first tour was chapter five, chapter seven. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, yeah, it, it was peacemaking and it, it was good uh, in that if there was a problem, we just went and killed it. Mm. Uh, and pretty quickly, they're stopping problems. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was on the I was on the former Yugoslavia tour. So it wasn't yeah. quite peacekeeping, but it, it was it was not quite like Somalia was. It was kind of. Oh, yeah. You were a NATO mission. OK. Yeah, it was a NATO yeah. mission. It was more like peacemaking. To, to give you an example, Nathan, um, every day in Somalia, you were on your toes and, and, and there were times you were scared. There were times you were ticked. There were, but in, <laughs> in Yugoslavia, as in the infantry, as a section commander, so you're in charge of those eight guys, you did two days mounted patrol, two days foot patrol, two days standby, two days, two days, two days, two, no days off. And you just kind of rotated through that. And you'd go for like maybe 14 days bored out of your mind. And then one day like, yeah freaked out and then yeah, just boredom 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 and then yep it's kind of like policing right like I, i'm thinking you know it's 99 percent paperwork and and there's a lot of menial tasks and and less exciting calls <laughs> that you go out to and then all of a sudden one giant event that's like holy shit and it could take the whole day uh and then like just come crashing back down and you don't hear anything for a week yeah well and 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 the thing about my Personally, my tour in Yugoslavia was um, other than my driver, uh, Brian Friesendorp, who I knew in the third battalion before and when it was in Victoria, everybody else didn't even have a hook, didn't have a secondary course. It was a very, very junior section. Mm. Um, for, for example, um, there was one guy, one young private that I had named McIver who could really shoot well. Every time we went to the range of zero, he could shoot well. And so we would we would go on blocks when we were on foot patrol, and I'd always have McIver in the second block. I would be in the first. And so if ever we got into a situation, I'd get McIver to to fan out, make sure there was nobody behind the the subject, the target, and and he was going to be my 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 uh, marksman. So uh, this went on for probably a month and a half, and then we went to the range to check our zeros. This guy couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. And I'm like, McIver, what, what's wrong? He goes, I don't know, Sergeant. I, 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 I dry fire, I practice, I, I clean my rifle, I take my scope off, I clean it. I'm like, no, tell me you didn't take your scope off. You know, just, <laughs> just, but, but he didn't know any better, right? And that, that's what I mean. I had very, very junior soldiers. For example, and, and this is the only story I'll tell about Yugoslavia because, um, anyways, so <laughs> yep. on, on the two days standby, we get company company commander, company headquarters calls down. Uh, we've got an SA-10 launcher. That's like the big uh, liftable old Soviet missiles for anti-aircraft missiles, like for okay. taking out the U-2 and stuff, or B-52s. It not, never in a million years are we going to find this, but it's like, okay, com commander said, yeah. And, and so Flanders is on standby. So my second in command was, was a guy I used to know from the airborne named Tim Nathan. And so we're we're going off, and so this area that we're going around was uh, Todorovo in uh, in uh, the in Bosnia in the former Yugoslavia, and so there used to be um, uh, uh, Croatians, and then it became Serbians, and then was Turkey, and the Serbians were um, or sorry Bosnians, and and then uh, Turkey, and the reason the Bosnians lived there is because they happened to be Muslim and, and the Turks wanted them there way back in the day as a buffer, right? 
So we're driving north on this road that isn't on any patrol route. None of the houses are occupied. It's the it's like 10 o'clock, 1030 at night, darker than Hades. We have the, the night lights, like very dim lights driving. And then out, out on the right side, I see like yellow flames. Hmm. And so I talked to Brian over the intercom system and I said, uh, do you see those? Flames? Yep. And then as we slow down, like we're only going like maybe 20 kilometers an hour as we're slowing down. I see a, a ladder and three guys with AK-47s around this burning house. And, and the deal was nowhere in this zone that they were in. Are, are you allowed to have your own weapons? So I, I tell Brian to, to, to stop. We didn't pull off the road because there's mine on both sides. So we stopped. I get out of the carrier. I have a Browning 9mm. Like, pew, 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 yeah. like, like that's all I have in my defense. World so I War II handgun. I get out the front of the carrier and I'm waiting for the soldiers to come out the back doors around both sides and back me up in, in, in an eight man section. Right. So there I am with my Browning nine millimeter, three guys with AK 47s, like 20 meters away who are looking at me like deer caught in the headlights. I'm like what seemed like an eternity. Where, where are my soldiers? Where, where are my troops? I see white light out the back of the uh, of the armored vehicle general purpose, and it's supposed to be red light or no light at all. So the guys with AKs get in there, get in their ladder, and they they take off north, and we're not allowed to not pursue, yeah, go any further north than a certain line. So I put my I put my Browning back in, and I go to the back of the armored personnel carrier. What the you know is going on here, troops? They were so junior. They were looking at the master corporal who was laying around on the ground rolling because at the exact time the armored vehicle jump purpose stopped he put his rifle down and went to go grab night vision goggles and his neck cracked on the back of the turret and he had a broken neck oh. so he's rolling around on the ground screaming in pain Jeez. and and the soldiers just were like oh we don't know what to do the mass corporal's hurt and here i am at the front of the vehicle with three guys with AK-47s, <laughs> yeah. and that was that was my tour in Yugoslavia. It was it was, I wasn't a happy camper. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a quite the situation to be in. Yeah, all alone. I, of course, I didn't tell my ex-wife about that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I come home, I don't tell the anybody about half the things I get into. Um, so yeah, so you said you did uh, Yugoslavia. After that, you ended up I, remustering into the intelligence corps. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting story, actually. Um, yeah. So um, my oldest son, who's uh, who's now twenty six, um, uh, he um, he was just about, or no, sorry, twenty four. Uh, he was my ex wife was like like seven months pregnant with him, and I just uh, I was posted to Edmonton. I was still in the infantry, a sergeant, and um, I went to the Londonderry Mall, and um, the Edmonton Police Service had a recruiting booth set up. And I just thought, ah, what the heck? I'll, I'll just try this. What the heck? I'll, I'll give it a whirl. Well, it turns out that uh, myself and a guy from Tofield, Alberta, passed the written test, and we're the only two to pass everything on the PT test, hmm. on the physical test. And uh, so, I, I was in I was in the hopper for a year. And um, but back then, um, the police service was only hiring maybe seven to ten people a year, and there were 75, 80, 90 people on the on the waiting list, right? So it depended where you scored. And so I did that long, um, I did that long tour to Yugoslavia. And then when I got back, 
they, I wasn't even back a year. They asked me to go back again with the first battalion. And I just said, like, this is ridiculous. So I, mm. I was going to join the police service. So after, after a year, as you know, um, if you're not hired, you have to do everything all over again. So I redid it myself and three other people passed everything. So I was, I was good to go, but they asked me to go back to Yugoslavia and I actually remastered to military intelligence. Um, not because I wanted to change careers, but just because I didn't want to go back to Yugoslavia. I wanted to join the police service. It was just that, that I thought it was that time in my life. I was going to have my oldest son, you know what I mean? And it just, yep. it just, yep. So I was hanging out. Uh, so when you remuster, I was a sergeant in the infantry, but then when you remuster to military intelligence, you go back down to corporal. However, mm. um, you're a corporal that knows a little bit more than the average corporal. And um, I, I know several friends that'll back this up. You're an ex-infantry sergeant so you know even more than the average corporal so um i was uh, I, I did i did well on my intelligence training and so i had my choice of postings and i said what is the most out of the way place that i can choose where nobody will ever notice me and i can just wait for them into police service to call so i picked family, family posting yeah right so i picked the electronic warfare center in ottawa and um and and the the course officer in Borden was like you want to go where you want to do what and so anyway so i went there so um, a, a few things happened. Um, um, I, I was a corporal and uh, the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel, comes into the intelligence uh, cell where I, where I was the central record, records clerk. And uh, he goes, and he was mad. He goes, I want to know where these records are. I, I, da, 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 da. And as he's describing them, I'm like, hmm, I think he's talking about the eight millimeter dot tapes that came in this week. So I, I go into the bottom drawer. I pull out this manila envelope and i'm pouring out these eight millimeter dat tapes and he goes yes these are them i want to know when they were registered and i said well actually they weren't registered sir we we have a week to kind of and he goes why didn't you register them well i could kind of tell something was fishy and you know what he said what else do you have in that drawer corporal so i opened up the drawer pulled out and and it was all documents that his incompetent officers had requested without following the pro following the proper paperwork channels and all this stuff so he, he was like this is Lieutenant Colonel. I was a corporal, but he's like, hmm, hmm. So anyways, that was the first thing that happened. And then so a, a, a few things happened along the way. Like, for example, I went as a master corporal, I was born a master corporal, and uh, I went to take notes at National Defense Headquarters at these meetings. Well, everybody else at the meeting is a major captain. I'm a master corporal. And, and so I would get back to the Electronic Warfare Center and <laughs> he'd ask for a briefing and he'd go, oh, okay, that's great. So rather than send any of these incompetent officers that work for him, he yeah. says, I'm going to send master planners. So then, uh, lo and behold, the deputy director of information management comes for a briefing for the commanding officer of the EW Center. He's, Colonel Knight says, uh, Jake, you're, you're going to give this briefing. And so as, as an int guy, you're, you're qualified PowerPoint formally and blah, blah, blah. So I, I briefed the deputy minister and uh, yeah, just, you know, and, and answered questions, anything I didn't know, I defer to the CO and yeah. And so after that, um, I was at the Billingsbridge um, Mall at uh, Zellers in Ottawa, back when there used to be Zellers. And um, my oldest was born in the stroller. My wife was, ex-wife was pregnant again, about to drop the bomb. And we're, we're, strolling through and this woman comes out from the customer service line does anybody know first aid does anybody know first aid and i was like okay yeah yeah i was 
I used to be a first aid instructor. I'm like, okay, I'll, I got this. I got this. And so it was the first time I ever did CPR for real mm. on this older gentleman. And um, what seemed like an eternity, probably only two minutes, then this nurse came to assist me, thank goodness, because it was a lot harder to do for real than, than you think it is. And then, and then the Ottawa firefighters came and pushed us out of the way. And he didn't, he didn't live. But, and I know that, I know that a majority of, the majority of people that get CPR don't, don't make it. But I I thought, well, I'm Jake. He he has to live. Anyways, but that happened on the weekend. So Monday morning, I go into work and the colonel, uh, the lieutenant colonel of the EW center says, what the heck happened this weekend? I got a report here from the Ottawa police. How's your name in it? Blah, 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 blah. He says, I'm going to put you in for a commendation. I said, sir, it was a combination of it happened on my own time on the weekend and the guy didn't live. And I was still kind of pissed about that. Right. Yeah. Like here I was to this guy. Oh, you're going to be okay, buddy. You're going to be okay. And and he ended up dying. So two weeks later, the commanding officer calls me into his office and the commanding general's in. And he says, we want you to, to go for commissioning from the ranks. And what that is, is um and i'll just explain because yeah it's a term that's often misapplied in the military but commissioning from the ranks you as a non-commissioned officer cannot apply for it you have to be nominated by your commanding officer unless fewer than one percent of all non-commissioned officers get commissioned from the ranks so i was like what and he goes yeah Uh, he goes i want you to be a signals officer and i know this probably doesn't make sense to you but to become an infantry officer from the infantry is difficult. To become a signals officer from the signal corps is difficult. But to become a signals officer from the intelligence corps, ex-infantry, is almost unheard of. Mm. So I said, eh, okay, I'll give it a whirl. So anyways, uh, the personnel selection officer, she said I stood an ice cube chance in heck. And um, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, so I was going down. So I had two young kids at home, like an 18-month-old and a brand new baby. And I was going down to the orderly room to sort out my claim, going to Las Vegas, Nevada for some conference. I'm like, yes. And the chief clerk was laughing his ass off. And he goes, guess what, Flanders? Guess who got picked up for commissioning from the ranks just before Christmas? I'm like, no. So, yeah. So I had to go back to basic training at 31 years old in Saint-Jean, Quebec. Back to basic. Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Got to do everything all over again. As an officer, though. Officer basic training. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. It's, it's everything that's expected of NCOs, plus you go through all the leadership training yes. in a compressed cycle. So you learn how all the soldier skills, but then you learn leadership skills that would be expected of a junior, senior, a second-in-command, and then a commander. But if you've already done basic, why send you, like, why make no, you do all no, that? No, 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 no. But just, <laughs> just, to, just to refocus on what Ben said, basic training as a non-commissioned officer, you learn how to work as a team, and they mold you into being a soldier. In the officer world, it's the same, but they also test your mm, okay, not, I see. not necessarily your acumen or or, or 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 how your brain works, but they want to see if you can lead, if you have any leadership yeah. capability, or or can, can they can they work with you? Yes or no? And so, for example, um, one of the tasks that you do in basic officer training is uh, you'll do small party tasks. And so I'm 31. Everybody else I'm going through basic training with is 18, 19, 20 years old. And these guys and girls are brainiacs from the planet Smartron. I'm not joking. So there's this one kid who is going a combat engineer. We get to this one small party task. And it was it was like, here's a barrack box with some rope and tackle. 
to attach and you've got this cement filled 40 gallon barrel that you have to get from the ground up to the through the second floor window without it touching the wall or the window sill ledges and you have to put it down inside and so that's actually a a, a and that that tests that tests your your acumen yeah and i was like he'll never be able to do this this young guy so smart was like okay well what we're going to do and he's drawing all these maps and he's giving orders not the same way i would give orders because i have experience but he's he, he's relaying all the pertinent details to the right people at the right time yeah yeah so so that that's a little different i wish uh man they need something like that with the police jeez because <laughs> it's like a, a little written test and uh an interview so they need to actually have people show their leadership skills. That would be actually a good idea. And so what you're saying is, like you go back, it's basic training, but you're you're doing different tasks than the guys that are non-commissioned. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Right. But but you still do some of the same basics. You still have to wash, iron your uniforms, polish your yeah. boots and okay. shoes, and all that stuff. And so I'll tell you a funny story. This is this is the old CFR talking, right? So. I know from basic training, from, from my infantry section commander's course, and from all these things, I understand that there are only two items that they're, if they're dirty, you can be charged for. That's your rifle and your respirator, your gas mask. Mm -hmm. Everything else, you just get extras. You just get written up. You just, so I'm trying to tell these young guys who are ironing their shirts at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I'm like, let's go for beer. Is your rifle clean? Yeah. But, oh, man, the sergeant picked up my, my shirts. I got to get them ironed. He's not going to check your shirts tomorrow. He knows you're going to re-iron your shirts. So I'm trying to explain yeah. this to people. So finally, I get the guys to start going to the mess with me more often because I think it's more important to be at the mess and discuss things and, and teach these young folks some of the things that, that, that are important and that I've learned over the years through experience. Well, so I said the only thing that can be dirty is your rifle or your respirator. Well, so the next morning they inspect everybody's rucksacks. So, so they, they op open up the valises. Well, we've been in the field the week that week. And so they open up this one guy, he's got a moldy, wet sleeping bag and leaves coming out. And he goes, what the heck? You didn't even air dry your sleeping bag. And he goes, well, I didn't think you're going to look at it. Though, so I <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me like, so going through depot, I was just going to say, it's like the same thing, you know, it's very paramilitary. You got to, it's very regimented how you do things when you're doing things. You're like, you're very tight on a schedule and you have to get, it's almost the same thing every night. You're going till like 11 at night, but you're up at 4 a.m. And it's all the ironing and all the organization and everything. So um, yeah, it's a pretty cool experience. One of the differences I'm, I'm hearing from Jake is that in infantry basic training as a, as a soldier, they want you to learn to do time management and do attention to detail. But what Jake was teaching people is time management, yeah. which is what's important and what isn't. Because as a leader, you're always going to be overloaded with tasks. Yeah. Uh, as a follower, I'm expected to be able to do my tasks, but somebody else manages how many tasks I get. Mm. So a leader, part of what they're testing is, is prioritization and time management. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And then the other thing I learned after, after leaving the infantry, having been a sergeant and going to the signal corps to be an officer, so there are five combat arms. That is the guys who do the fighting. The lead is the infantry. Secondary, five. Five, Ben. <laughs> five. Uh, the lead is the infantry. Second is combat engineers. Uh, then you have uh, the artillery, the armored corps. And then supporting those four 
is the signal core. <laughs> Anyways, um, what I didn't realize was um, in the combat arms, if you ever make a mistake as a sergeant, you you you'll suffer. Your 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 personnel evaluation report will suffer that year, but but you you have a chance to make it up. And as a warrant, you supervise the sergeants. But if you make a mistake, the sergeant major will correct you. Okay. And you will probably be promoted to master warrant officer eventually. And as a master warrant officer, you can make a mistake, but the sergeant major, the RSM, would be like, you don't do that again. But you'll probably finish your career as a master warrant officer. As a captain, if you, in the combat arms, if you ever screw up once, you stay at captain and you're released at the end of your, done. Uh, you're, you're done. Wow. And and that's that's what I didn't really yeah so I was very fortunate I didn't ever screw up and yeah but barely sometimes yeah well and one of the things I'm wondering is like so as you're you're a lot of this stuff seems like it kind of happens beginning of your career um, you're not like super super far into it but do you have anybody that is um, really kind of like bringing you along maybe kind of like leading the way a bit or anybody that you found really inspirational to this point. Well, absolutely, and and I'm glad you brought that point up. Um, so, despite uh, the different leadership le uh, leadership styles that you have in the infantry or the intelligence corps or the signal corps, um, each individual and Ben probably has his list of people that he looks up to and 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 has amalgamated parts of their style into his leadership ability or his style. So, I have three people that I I brought what I took in, into my leadership style. And the first time I ever led was as a corporal. No, actually, I was Renee Keene, second in command as a trooper, right? Yep. Um, but remember I mentioned my my platoon commander in, in Wainwright, the guy who became a judge? Yeah. Richard Houston. I, I, I have him. Master Corporal Renee Keens, who was the area regimental sergeant major. I have him. And the other guy is, uh, he's passed away now, but Steve Mitchell, yeah. who was, uh, he was your section commander. 100%. Those are the three, the three people in the infantry that I learned my basic leadership skills from, whether I was a sergeant, whether I was an officer, whether I was a major, I, my basic lessons I learned from those three. However, it's funny that you mentioned that, was there anybody up? So the army doesn't, or the military, I guess, but the army certainly doesn't give you a, 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 uh, somebody to look after you or babysit you along the way. Yeah. But I was very, very fortunate when, when Ben and I deployed to Somalia, there was a young signal captain named Roberto Maslin who was deployed there. And then later on, when I was uh, the mission management officer, after I became a signals intelligence officer, I was a mission management officer, which is in charge of the 24 seven aspect of, of a signals intelligence station. Who was my commanding officer? Lieutenant Colonel Maslin. And then later on, when I after I became a major, and I, I was very luckily selected to be the operations officer of the group, like in charge of 2,800 people, who was the full colonel? Maslin. You know, okay. so, and, and he was he is a very good leader. He, he's out of the, the army now, but he's a very good leader. And, and he, 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 he babysat. Well, actually, and Lieutenant Colonel Maslin, when he was promoted uh, brigadier, I worked for him at uh, Director of the Land Support. I was at... I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but a commission from the ranks guy was in charge of the intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance project for the Canadian Army. I couldn't even say that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Army-esque. Yeah. So what he's talking about is 
Yeah. So he's, he's talking about, he was in charge of all the information that would be processed and become true intelligence. Um, he was in charge of all the gathering and processing for Canadian forces for a guy who used to be a corporal in the airborne. Yeah. Not too bad. Yeah. But, but I never got, I never, I never screwed up. That's, that's the main thing. Yeah. yeah. Or never got caught screwing up. No, no, no. no. I, I won't admit that live. <laughs> no. <laughs> But uh, but just but just to yeah. reinforce Ben's point or uh, to help explain it to civilians, um, all the other majors that I was working with in where I was in charge of the intelligence dissemination had their master's degrees or PhDs. I didn't. I just had high school and two years of university. Wow. Looking at like some of the bio that you you provided here. So when you became the specialist in signals, so now you're the specialist in signals intelligence. Yep. Um, you had a bunch of tours or deployments. Uh, so you went to UAE, Bahrain, Bagram, Afghanistan. When you're kind of going around to these places, like how long are you spending in these places? And what can, can you tell us like uh, vaguely, if you have to, uh, what exactly you do there? So my first deployment was to uh, the United Arab Emirates. And it was only for a month, month to month and a half um, to replace uh, a, a young officer whose mother was just found out she had cancer and was dying. So I was only going there just to be a placeholder until the next qualified person came over. So I was a lieutenant, unqualified, but I was the only guy they had. So they sent me over there. And then the uh, commanding officer of the base was uh, was also the commanding officer of, of one of the Hercules squadron. And he says, well, lieutenant, uh, before you leave, I wouldn't mind a written report on, on, on what you've observed. So I said, I, I told them the honest goods. And uh, as Ben knows, I'm, I don't pull any punches. And so in there, I said, the officer should probably be replaced with a master corporal or sergeant because that would up the ante of the produ the, the production and a, a master corporal or sergeant can supervise. We don't need an officer. Mm -hmm. And so this lieutenant colonel's reading this and he's like, so what you're saying is you're shooting yourself in the foot. I said, I'm just telling you the truth, sir. And he yeah. says, I have I have some concerns about what's going on with the naval logistics people in Bahrain. Are you willing to take a trip there? So I said, sure, sir. Sounds good. So I went to Bahrain and, uh, oh, it was even worse. Um, the naval logistics was anyways. Um, so the Canadian fleet would rearm and refuel in Bahrain. And so this was, this is important war fighting type activity. The Canadian headquarters was an entire floor of an apartment building. And it was all used by very important people coming. So they had five Navy, Canadian Navy personnel posted there, only two of which were supply. The other three were uh, all for the VIPs. So I wrote all that up, gave it to the CO of, uh, of uh, the air base in uh, the UAE. And he goes, holy crap. So <laughs> they fired the three non-logistics uh, people and put logistics people in there. And so word got back to Ottawa. and. Um, the commanding officer of uh, of the signals intelligence state, the main signals intelligence station, said, "Jake, um, we're hearing some things coming back from uh, from theater that uh, that are you're you're kicking ass over there." And I said, ah, "I'm just telling the truth." And he goes, "So we have a we have a position open in Bagram. It's an American NSA billet, but the Americans are just short people. So if you wanted, you could go there." So I said, "Yeah, sure, sounds good." Okay, so I'm going to stop just there. Um, what he's talking about is the National Security Agency, which is the oh. umbrella organization that covers all of American intelligence gathering. This is a prized plum 
opportunity mm -hmm. that's offered to the top level conventional officers. It's almost never given to, it's not something you would give to a commission from the ranks, ex sergeant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Un unqualified, unqualified lieutenant. <laughs> so, anyways, so lieutenant army. Yeah. So I did. Uh, I did the uh, the last four months in uh, in Bagram, and uh, I actually the 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 girl in charge of the team was actually a Kiwi captain uh, because the Americans were so short people. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, but that was good. But I was in the rear with gear, not, not like not in the front at all. But it was good. It was a good eye opening experience for me. And mm -hmm. uh, man, I'll, I'll tell you, I won't get into specifics, but. Um, a lot of Canadians don't know just how capable our signals intelligence, not just capability, but our processing, the people involved, how good they are. And I would say that uh, we are just as good as what the British have at GCHQ. Not nearly as good because we just don't have the capacity as what the Americans have at the National Security Agency. But I'm very, very proud. And, and I had my eyes open um, in, in, in Bagram. And is this like so? This is like signals intercept. Like you, you're picking off stuff in the airwaves and stuff. No, I, I won't get into detail. Okay. about that, but yeah, it's 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 high level stuff. Okay. Um, when you were there, like you're saying, there's a bunch of people from different countries now because the Americans couldn't fill spots. So, uh, and I imagine throughout the, your career to this point, you had come across other uh, uh, countries that had sent armies or people that you're training with. Um, do you find anyone in particular that? really stood out as like kind of being an exceptional country or a group of people to work with or anyway that was particularly bad and you're like wow they really didn't send their people with anything good no it's it's different on every tour right ben and it's different every mm -hmm. every experience you have but what i will say is on my second tour to afghanistan i was uh, the electronic warfare troop commander and electronic warfare is kind of what the military uses every 48 hours like radio communications and that sort of thing like to, to decrypt that, um, uh, translate it. And so I was the electronic warfare troop. Banner, so I was, in, I was in charge of a 33 person group, but on that tour, the New Zealand army, their electronic warfare troop didn't have the training capability to give them all because the Americans, the Brits, the Australians, the Canadians, the, and, and the Kiwis all have the same standards of training. Mm. So they couldn't do the, the, um, what, what's it called, Ben? Uh, the, the certification at the end of training when you go to Wainwright or whatever and they, they sign you up as, yeah, you're going to sign you off. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have the training capacity in New Zealand to handle that. So I actually had a section of Kiwis in, um, Kabul, Afghanistan under my command and I was signing them off on training and they weren't, they weren't allowed to leave the wire. And, uh, yeah, but oh, really? it was, that was a unique experience. And so, um, I, I won't I won't get into any of the negative aspects, but that that was that was one of the positive aspects. I'm a, I'm kind of a glass half full kind of guy. Yeah, when you were over there, one of the things you were talking about uh, mentioned in the bio here, and I think you said it in the uh, the part there uh, about intelligence surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance. So, I Star Squadron. Yep. So uh, that that's a that's a that's a company sized group. It's a little larger than a company because there's there's so many. So there are uh, reconnaissance armored vehicles that have um, uh, electro optical night vision scopes that can see like 16, 20 kilometers out. Mm. And those are armored personnel. So there's them. There are um, uh, art artillery people who are counter battery fire. So when the enemy is shooting rockets at us, they have radars 
that can that can look for the direction and launch position of of the okay. enemy rocket. Yep. Uh, and um, there are um, let's see what else. Oh, there there and there are there's an intelligence um, uh, all source intelligence cell. They just pretty much stay static. Mm. And then there's the electronic warfare troop, which goes out, deploys, and provides support for our own troops by jamming, as well as trying to gather intelligence. But it's only on a on a 48 hour base. Like after 48 hours, it's useless intelligence because it's lower level. Um, yeah, electronic warfare. One thing I wonder too is like, so what you're on a lot of deployments and you're kind of bouncing around. What's home? What's happening at home for you? So is this uh, wife and kids are back here? Ben and I have talked about this many times, and um, it's funny. Uh, we we get medals, and uh, I know Ben will agree with me. We didn't we didn't seek to earn any of them. They were we just happened to be there, and you don't have a choice. You just go. But our wives, they deserve so much uh, credit uh, beyond uh, medals that that soldiers get for, for watching watching the home front, like. When I think of Ben's wife and my wife looking after our children when they mm-hmm. were younger and uh, and like it's just what what they do is absolutely incredible. Yeah, so much so that um, the government recognized my wife with one of the uh, anniversary medals uh, a few years back just for putting up with me. <laughs> yeah, and it literally like a joke, but literally that's it was to recognize the sacrifices she and and other military spouses have made. It's it's a huge huge deal. Even just as a plain old infantry sergeant, I was gone eighty five percent of the time for four or five years. Wow! Um, my five year old son, whom you know, uh, was being tucked in uh, one night, and I I was in Kosovo, and I got a message saying I'm going I'm going on this career advancement course, which was good because I didn't even know when. I was, oh, look, I'm going to go back to Canada. I didn't even know I was coming back, so I was home for two weeks, and then went off in this four month training course after being away for four months operationally. And uh, my son's being tucked in, and he he asked his mom, he asked my wife, he says, "When's Dad coming for another visit?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says visit because he thought I didn't live there. Yeah, and he was right. Uh, I, I assume we're talking about the same boy. He he stayed yeah. over at my house when uh, your yeah. wife went in to give birth to the twins. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so Jake and his wife took care of. So yeah, it, it's a whole other battlefront. Um, uh, it's, it's what what they do yeah. is incredible. Hundred percent. You even see this, um, like, uh, and Ben, we were saying this kind of on the. I think after our first recording today, uh, just even being in policing, like, you're not gone overseas and you're not gone for months, but even within twenty four hour cycles, and like, if your kids are at school and then you know you're off that time, maybe you're sleeping, and you're gone before they get home, and you miss them at night, and then you do that like four days in a row. They start. They really do notice. Um, they start asking oh, yeah. questions, and um, you see that with a lot of the guys. They got to try and balance the work life um, style of things. So, yeah, I couldn't imagine like uh, uh, being gone for months at a time and and bouncing around like and just kind of the word you use like when dad coming for a visit, you know. Yeah, it makes it sound like you know you you don't live there. I didn't. Right. So I lived. I was there fifteen percent of the time. I was visiting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and and Jake was gone more than than I was because of his specialty, mm. you know. So it's it's a very real sacrifice on the home front. Just just to to, to make this point, Nathan, um, and to and to back up what Ben was saying, um, it, you, 
we don't we didn't seek any of the medals or anything that we have we we're just deployed when we we're told to deploy but at the same time we're 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 a breadwinner and we have kids and it doesn't matter if your eyes were opened on your first deployment to Somalia you know how bad it's going to be but you have to go because you have to you have to make wages you have to you have to fulfill yep. a career and and yes don't get me wrong there's some parts of it i loved um and uh i, I regretted getting out but at the time it was the right thing to do but at the end of the day you just have to imagine you've got young kids and you're deploying over here well if i want to keep my job i guess i gotta deploy <laughs> yeah yeah well i imagine like as you're getting more specialized so both of you uh like even when you're getting into those specialized sections um the tasks that you're able to do like you you start to become you know the only person who can do it so when the the service comes calling uh and they say like hey like we really need you to go or like you're saying the americans can't staff this spot and you like we're, we're gonna send you um there's part of you that thinks like you know i don't want to let them down but I'll, i don't want to let my family down but they really need me like this is the oh i'm the only one who can do this for the country or, or one of the few who can do this for like an entire country so it's like a weird balancing weird dynamic I never thought of it quite like from from that high level, but um, I, I I totally agree with uh, with what you mean. It, it's 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 you've got the worry from your family on the home front, and, and you're worried about that. But at the same time, yes, you realize that there's only so many people that can can get this job done. But um, on my uh, on my third deployment um, to Afghanistan, I was attached to uh, Softcom Special Forces. And um, uh, trying to think of what I can say. So I was there to sign for all of the signals intelligence gear in regional command south, so the Kandahar Harat er area, mm. off of the National Security Agency on behalf of Canada, not on behalf of the Canadian military, on behalf of the Canadian government. So remember, remember when I said before that you always had a fire team partner in the combat arms. Yeah. Mm. This is one time I didn't have a fire team partner because I wasn't there as a soldier. I was there on behalf of the government of Canada. So I'm, so this is the second time I've, uh, or no, sorry, this is the first time I was in Kandahar. So um, I'm trying to find the American brigade that's responsible for this one fire base up in Kowat. And um, I'm wandering around, wandering around. I'm looking, checking this stock on this and, so everything I check off, if it matches, Canada will sign for it from the American government. And so it, it, it was really a, it wasn't a fun task, but it had to be done and it had to be done correctly. So anyway. So you're administrating, sorry, Jake, just in plain speak, you were administratively accepting ownership of some sensitive electronic equipment. Yeah, right. right. So there was, okay. there was essentially two CCANs of this electronic gear in, at Firebase Collot. And I'm trying to find the American Brigade Group that's responsible for Firebase Clot. So I find it, and I I, I wait, and uh, I, I get into the operations office, and I said, "Yeah, are you guys responsible for Clot? Yep, yep. Uh, you'll need to spot, speak to the operations officer when he comes back from lunch." Like, oh, yeah. Anyway, so the operation officer comes back from lunch. He says, "Yeah, we, yep, we. I've got those two C cans from the agency you're talking about. They're at Clot." Well, you can get there one of two ways. I could send you by road, by vehicle, not recommended, or I can send you by helicopter. 
And I said, wow, okay, helicopter sounds good. And uh, he says, the only thing is they only get resupplied like once a week, maybe a little less, but so you, you'll have to stay there for a week if, if, if I send you by helicopter. I said, no problem. I'm not on a schedule. So, you know, anyways, so I go by myself without a fire team partner, go by myself out to Firebase Kalat in a Chinook. I land, I talk to the U.S. Army captain, get my in-chop brief. And um, he says, you know, a part, part of the part of the briefing, the intelligence briefing is they get hit almost every night. There's plot shots by the Taliban. Once in a while, the Taliban actually attack because Kalat is on the ring road that goes around Afghanistan. It's just uh, northeast of Kandahar. And um, okay. anyways, so I'm like, yeah, OK, whatever. So anyways, um, first two nights, like I was done taking stock of what was in the two sea cans within the first morning. I I sent the word back. I had a well a classified uh, satellite phone sent word back. Yep, no problem. This one checked off. So now I'm just like bored out of my mind, hanging out in the canteen, watching movies, DVDs, and you know, with with the guys getting to you know the young American soldiers. And then on the third night, the Taliban actually attacked. Like they attacked hard. And um, and so I go to the command post and I and I tell the I tell the the captain I said, hey dude. I was a captain at the time. I said, dude, I'm a signaler. I can help out with signals, but I used to be a sergeant in infantry. So whatever, whatever assistance you need. And so not even a half an hour later, he's like, well, actually the, the landlines cut out to one of the outposts. So if you wouldn't mind being a runner going back and forth, that'd be great. I'm like, yeah, sure. Not thinking, but Ben, you, you understand at the time you're like, yeah. Oh. So to, to paint the picture, this is a, uh, like you would see in a movie, a rugged, isolated um, outpost. It has a central command bunker, and then out on the wire, on the edges of the camp, it has several machine gun bunkers. Mm. And normal communications is done by a field telephone, but because of the attack, the wires have been cut. So the runner's job, which sounds pretty generic, is to physically run from the command bunker across the open spaces under enemy fire and talk to the people and communicate information back and forth with the people who are in the machine gun bunkers. So remember, Jake at this time is, is a highly specialized signals officer, of which I'll point out there are probably just a handful, I understand, who were cleared and, and trained to do what he was doing. And yet he was willing to go what we generally use expendable privates for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's leadership. So yeah. on the fifth time when I was running out to the outpost, a rocket-propelled grenade was launched and came in and hit in the corner of a sea container and the Hesco Bastion, which is the, the large um, uh, material and uh, uh, metal lined bins that hold the sand. It's it's the modern day version of sandbags. They're a lot larger. Okay. So the rocket propelled grenade hit right in the corner between the sea can and, and the Hesco Bastions, just as I was running out. So I'm like, and I, you know, you kind of, you go deaf for a minute. You're like, whoa, that was close. And then you keep running to the outpost because that's where you got to get. And so I got the information, got the update, went back to the command post. And there was a sergeant who was like, holy fuck, sir, are you okay? I'm like, what do you mean? I looked down at my right arm and it was covered in blood. And I started to go woozy. I was like, because, you know, shock starts to set in. And so I, I was, I was wounded by, uh, by an RPG. Now, Ben and I, Ben and I discussed, uh, fate uh all the time but uh i i i believe in fate because if i had been a half step more forward that probably wouldn't have yeah uh nicked my arm it would have gone through my neck Jeez. so uh yeah good good choice 
Yeah. I say there's a man, there's a lot of that, I imagine. So if I if I if I wasn't as fat as I am and as slow of a runner. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh that comes up so much though. Like you, you think uh like there's gotta be a ton of those times throughout your career, even just when you're talking about the minefield earlier, like you could have gone an inch one way, an inch another, you never know. You might have hit something that uh kind of was the end of you or the entire team. So you put those out yourself in those situations and uh, yeah, you definitely have that increased risk. Um, just want to make sure we kind of get things in here because I got about 20 minutes or so left. Uh, one of the, the things in your bio, you said you went to Littram and uh, you said it was two wonderful years, but uh, uh, one of the most difficult. So wondering if you could tell us just a, a bit about that part of your career. Absolutely. So, um, um, I was interviewed along with six other uh, majors to be the uh, to go going for the operations officer position of the CF uh, Canadian Forces Signals Intelligence Group. It's called the CF Information Operations Group. So this is where you're the operations officer in charge of the three subunits operations officer. Now I was the junior guy out of the seven of us, and I didn't I didn't tick all the boxes. I didn't do exchange officer at National Security Agency. I didn't do exchange officer at Annapolis, Maryland. I did kind of the hard things and I didn't have a master's degree. I didn't even have an undergrad degree. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas all these people had, they were they were the glory boys. And well, there was one girl and, and the rest were boys. And I was commissioned from the ranks. So I stood not a good chance of getting this position. However, I was uh, the last person interviewed. And um, uh, there's the there's the brigadier general, the full colonel, and three lieutenant colonels in the room interviewing me, and uh, and it was all Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. They're starting to think about pulling out. What do you, you know? And I gave all the right answers, the same as everybody else did, but I was done earlier than everybody else that were was interviewed. And uh, and the uh, and the colonel says, well, did you, we're we're done a little early? Did you have anything else to add? And I said, well, I I thought you would have talked about this one system and I, I can't name it, but it's, it's on board the frigates and the fr- frigates from both coasts. We have a certain number of systems, certain number of spares and a training system. Well, over the years, these systems have gotten, gotten decrepit. So now we only have three on the East coast, two on the West coast, and one training system and no spares. I said, really? I mean, I know it take attention away from Afghanistan, but we need to fix these systems because you never know where the next operation is going to take place. And here's an army guy talking about needing to fix the Navy systems. And so the colonel was like, holy hell. So anyways, uh, a couple of days goes by and I get called into the office and there's nobody else there. And I'm walking down the hallway and I'm like, well, at least I got interviewed. That was pretty cool, you know? And, uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, the colonel says, congratulations. You're going to be my operations officer. So I was the, I was the first and only uh, commission from the ranks. Uh, operations officer that uh that 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 was in the headquarters so yep did they tell you why though like why they chose you was there something that stood out in particular yeah it just i was the only person that asked about those naval systems and uh Mm. and i was thinking outside the box about what we need to fix just in the off chance that something else comes okay and i find uh a few points here like throughout our whole conversation a lot of it comes down to um telling the truth yeah but like how you deliver it to people is like very important. And I find like even yeah. in my own career, uh, that's one of the things I 
I've found like some people will go like, ah, oh, you, you rub everybody the wrong way or it, it pisses people off. It's like, generally those aren't the people though that I have to worry about. Like the ones you get mad about those things, but the ones who are the real decision makers or other leaders, they're the ones who take that and go like, okay, I want this guy here because he's not going to bullshit me. And that's, what's going to save lives or get things done. So, yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. Um, the, the one thing I, I will mention, um, so one of the things that I, I, I had there in my office was the quote unquote red phone. So anytime anything happened in Afghanistan, like anybody was wounded or killed in action, all the phones went dead from theater for personal intercoms or, or uh, anything non-operational went dead it, with the exception of our red phone. And so our red phone, National Defense Headquarters Intelligence Cell would, would phone us and give us all the pertinent details of who was killed or wounded because we had 48 hours to use our intelligence gathering to try and figure out which, mm, what can I say, which which SIM card was being used or was it targeted? Okay. Or what? Yeah. Anyways, so, um, and either myself or the master warrant officer would answer this red phone, but whenever we weren't in an office, each weekend, either one of us would have the beeper. And so if the beeper went off, we'd go into the office, into the secure area, answer the red phone or phone National Defense Headquarters. And um, so everybody... Everybody who deploys to uh, to theater in combat has some degree of of PTSD or or depending on their mental management capabilities. Like like Ben is very good at, at mental management, and so he doesn't have as 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 many uh, PTSD like I do. But um, so one time the phone rang, and I was used to this. I hated it, but I was used to this. KIA are wounded, right? And you, you've got to take details. One time I answered the phone and I've got PTSD. However, I'm not, I'm not announcing it because the army will take care of you, but you're out 365 and a day later. And I need to provide food on, I'll put food on the table for the kids. Right. Yeah. I answered the phone. One of the KIA was a good friend of Ben and I's Frank Mellish. And I just broke down in tears and the master warrant officer grabbed the, the phone from me and 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 the the captain at the other end was like, "What's wrong with the major?" And you know the MWO was like, "Oh no, he, he just he got called up by the commander." But and at that moment in time, I I just told my commander, I said, "I need to take a couple of days off." Like it was just, it's a lot. If if I can say one thing is the Canadian Army is so small that when we have people really really good people like Frank Mellish um, that that pass. I don't think the average Canadian citizen realizes how much they sacrifice because he didn't just sacrifice himself in Afghanistan. He was a sergeant from the Royal Canadian Regiment who took over from my section in, in Yugoslavia, you know, and, mm. and, and he bought a 40 pounder of rum for my, for my stag, you know, like people don't realize just how, how much sacrifice certain soldiers put in to, to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a tough part about, these jobs where it's service and sacrifice and um, you know, for the, the, maybe in looking at it from a really big point of view, you're just kind of seen as a number a lot of the time, or you can be, you're just a cog in the machine. Um, unless you have the right bosses around right leadership or chain of command. And they really kind of take stock of like, okay, these people, you know, the ones here, they're the ones who are holding it together but I've got all these other people around kind of doing these smaller tasks. But 
this is one and be one of my gripes, kind of like in the police service. You know, a lot of the time they're willing to just move a person out and just bring somebody in, and it's like you can't just fill spots like that, right? Like it's it it matters who the person is, and you need the right person, the right time, and the right position to do some of these jobs. Yeah, um, absolutely. The um, remember I said when the lieutenant colonel took over from the brigadier general and the, and the NDHQ said, no, you will be in charge. And I said, how good to go the army was. Well, on my last tour in Afghanistan, I was, I was in Kandahar. I was in the rear with gear. I brought around special intelligence files to the commander, to the, to the department of foreign affairs, to, to CSIS, to, you know, CSE. I, I, I did that. That was my job. So at the time, the military wasn't taking, wasn't taxing anything. I made more money than you could shake a stick at. However, they did that on purpose to try and motivate people to deploy to Afghanistan. So remember what I said about fire team partners, you're always looking out for each other. It was broken. We, we, we didn't have fire team partners looking out for each other. We had people worried about how much they were going to make. That was enticing them to go back to Afghanistan. And I kid you not, the guy I took over from, I won't name names, but the guy I took over from, I knew him. Um, he had... He cleared out his locker, so I took over the ISO and moved in. No kidding. In 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 his locker was suicide prevention and CDs and books. Mm. And back back when we deployed to Somalia, if 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 you were missing, like if you hadn't gone to church last Sunday, you were dagged yellow. You know, there was just, yeah, you yeah. didn't get to go. Yeah, you didn't get yeah, to go. Like, you know, flags. It was just so so messed up. But as I said before, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, and I know you're you you've got to you've got to get shut this down i will just say so my in chop brief so this is the briefing you get when you first show up i was at the the newly built uh canadian theater which held about 280 people there was a canadian intelligence corporal that's the second highest rank you can get to giving his intelligence portion of the brief there was myself and maybe 15 other canadians the rest were all u.s service people from the 10th mount division Sergeants and captains taking notes like 90. And I thought to myself, there's not too many Canadians who get to say they saw this today. This is awesome. <laughs> this is freaking awesome. Well, and um, I do have a few minutes left. I, I just, uh, one thing I do want to touch on though is when you go to the point of retirement, you say like, hey, I'm done here. Can you talk a bit about that and like what that decision was like? And once you're out, uh, what it's kind of like you know, when you first start, you're like, I'm a civilian now <laughs> and what that's like. Well, I, I, I joined one month after I turned 18. So like being a civilian, I was like, Woo! deer in the headlights. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's individual. And um, as, as I mentioned, I was commissioned for the ranks and I made major and, and you can only make captain, but be, unless you're at war and unless you deploy to a major boat, well, guess what? You're a major son. Um, anyways. But um we pulled back out of Afghanistan and I saw my career manager and he was like, do you have a deployment to Afghanistan? And he has a piece of paper with check boxes. And I said, no, I've got four. He goes, okay, well check. Uh, have you finished your master's degree? And it was all about promotion, you know? And, and so he was going to post me to Edmonton, uh, Edmonton, uh, Valcarche, Quebec for, uh, uh, Gatestown, New Brunswick. And I had two boys in high school in Ottawa. I'm like, no way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I chose to get out, but that was my own, my own doing that and uh I, I i was done my so before you deploy i would i would sit down with each boy individually 
and just, you know, they, they, they'd have tears and we talk. But on the last deployment, my youngest son really, it just, he, he realized how dangerous it was over there. And he cried and cried. Okay. And, like, he, and I said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, oh, when I got out, um, I, I just, I, I put my CV out there for, for jobs. And uh, I got, I, uh, I was, uh, the, one of my last position in the military, I was seconded to the communication security establishment. And one of the courses that I took there was access to information and privacy. And um, um, uh, a lot of people don't like it, but um, the very first file I worked on was written by Glenn Berry, who was a diplomat who was killed in Afghanistan. And I took it serious from that point on. Um, and um, at the end of my two years at the communication security establishment, I was one of two members of the communication security establishment that would handle ATIPs from, from uh, foreign affairs, from defate from so what you're saying jake is when other parts of the government or individuals would request uh access to information or privacy items saying hey give us all the notes from gwynberry between these dates you'd be the one who would go through and and vet them and uh redact yeah, yeah. the important parts right okay, okay clear yeah so so I, I can't get into too much detail about the but essentially if somebody sends a document from, say, the embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan. It's written by one person, but there are many contributors to it. There's a contributor from CSIS. There's a contributor from CSE. There's a contributor. There could be contributors from the Department of National Defense. So, you know, and so it goes to all all these agencies. It's farmed out. And can you please redact anything that's classified? Okay. All right. If if it were requested by, say, somebody from the Toronto Sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So what have you been up to since then, and and where are you kind of at now? Well, um, I am, uh, I, unfortunately, uh, I applied to uh, Vernon Search and Rescue, and um, that's where I, I've met uh, many good friends, uh, two, two really, really uh, best friends. Uh, Jeff is a retired Edmonton Police Service officer, and uh, Ross uh, started out as an ambulance attendant, became a nurse in northern Saskatchewan and Nunavut, and uh, he retired as second-in-command of Health Canada. So those are those are my oh, wow. two buddies. I just had breakfast with them this morning. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm on the uh, rope rescue team. So we go over the edge of cliffs and stuff, and it's good because I, I feel as though I'm giving back to society in, in general, you know, because I might have been yeah. a soldier, but I was paid by taxpayers' dollars. So it, it makes sense for me to volunteer to to help these people out now. Uh, I'm also a member, uh, a member of a few board of directors. Uh, I'm the vice president of the um, Princess Patricia's Canadian Night Infantry Association. And so we we give uh, we give uh, educational bursaries. Uh, we look after veterans in need or homeless veterans, um, and we we do a bunch of other things. Like uh, there was a, uh, a a Korean War memorial that took place this year, where there were Canadian students and a few Patricias went uh, retired Patricias. So we we do different things like that. I'm I'm uh, on the board of directors of the Southern Interior Veterans Society, and that's. Uh, that's looking out for uh, for uh, veterans and their families in the North Okanagan and the homeless, essentially. So you you're not busy at all then. No. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I'm on like one board, and uh, that's enough work for me. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah, but you you still work. I'm retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you know what? Um, we're just coming up to the end of the time, but I want to say that like, I think that um, it's amazing stories, and I'm really glad we could get you on here uh, to tell some of your career because, I mean, there's endless amounts, I'm sure, of, of stories. And I think it's very important to have uh, a 
these out there and record it for legacy pieces, right? And you, something you can give to family. Um, they can listen to for a long, long time to come. Um, so yeah, I just want to make sure you get to say thank you and, and appreciate Ben for finding you and getting you on here. <laughs> so well, it, uh, it, that's really good. It, he, he had to convince me for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it was worth it. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, if you have any, either of you have any final thoughts, I'll stop the recording and we'll just chat for uh, a second, uh, after. Sounds good. Thank you.